Welcome to IMTV. I'm Alan Keyes, and this is Let's Talk America. We're going to be continuing, as we have, I guess, for the last couple of weeks, talking about the way in which, as a people, we're coping with uh, the challenge of the coronavirus threat, uh, what its implications might be for now and for the future, and what it tells us about ourselves, uh, and could possibly, for good or ill, tell us about how we handled need to handle ourselves in the future. We have somebody with a very unique background that gives him perspectives uh, that will help to shed light on all of that uh, and who's been in the news a little bit lately. So you might have heard of him already. We'll be right back. I'm Alan Keyes. I just want to let you know that on a recurring basis every Tuesday, we're going to have a guest, Mike Adams, the Health Ranger. He's going to be joining us to talk about the whole array of challenges, both in terms of our health as a people and as individuals, and our health as a nation. We'll be looking at those things through the eyes of someone who has thought deeply about many things and who has many great ideas to share with me and with you and with everyone who tunes in to Let's Talk America on Tuesdays when we meet with the Health Ranger to talk about how we sustain the health of our liberty. Welcome back. Well, my guest today is Scott Jensen. Uh, now, Scott is a member of the Minnesota Senate. Uh, he also has the background of a medical doctor who's been in practice for many years, very popular amongst his patients. He's known for taking an approach to medicine uh, that applies the competences uh, of his training and background in addition to being open to those things which over the course of human experience people have learned uh, that can be effective ways of trying to keep the body healthy instead of just curing disease. And I've always uh, had great respect for folks who keep these things in balance. Uh, and I'm glad that in spite of all the attention I'm sure he's getting these days, he was able to take a little time out to talk to us uh, here at Let's Talk America. Welcome to the show, and, and thank you very much for being on. Uh, my thank first question much. has to do with what uh, brought you to my attention, at least, and that was a report about something you had seen that you were sent, uh, I, I guess, as a, a guidance uh, about how to, uh, things are being done. Uh, particularly in reporting deaths as a result of uh, or in relation to or in the presence of, I go through all of that for reasons you will, I guess, explain, uh, the coronavirus. Because uh, right at the moment, it seems to me, our sense of the impact, the mortal impact of the coronavirus is what has driven policy uh, to a large degree and the fact that we're dealing with something that's unusually mortal and potent. Um, how did how how did you uh, get involved in the discussion of this question? That's a great question, Alan. About two weeks ago, I took the time to do a video as a senator, and I pointed out some of the reasons why the modeling and the projections are so erroneous. And there were a couple of things I highlighted. One was that initially the thought was that at least 75% of people that would have coronavirus or COVID-19 would also show symptoms. So we knew that there would maybe be 25% of people that would potentially have an asymptomatic course and never realize that in fact they'd even had coronavirus. But 
what we found was 50% of people in many situations don't have any symptoms at all. The other thing that happened was looking at the Diamond Princess, we found that the number of cases that they found were positive and had patients with no symptoms whatsoever was a big number. So now we're realizing that we've got most likely transmission without anybody knowing it. Hmm. And that sort of leads to the second thing. And the second thing was that we realized that in Wuhan and in other places, for every confirmed case, there were probably 10 more cases that hadn't been confirmed. So when I gave that video at the Senate, that raised some, some eyeballs because some people were concerned that I was sort of speaking against the presumed line. Then last Friday, a week ago, I received a, an email from the Minnesota Department of Health that laid out some ideas and thoughts as to how we should be coding COVID-19 disease on our death certificates. And in the communication from the Department of Health was a link. And I chased that link down and it took me to the CDC and there was a seven page document that in no uncertain terms made it clear that we were being encouraged to diagnose COVID-19 in the absence of confirmed test. In other words, if we presumed it, it would be okay. If we suspected it, if we thought it was probable within reasonable means, and they even gave an example with an 86-year-old woman who was frail, elderly, and ill, and she had been in a nursing home. She did not have COVID-19. She was never tested for COVID-19, but she developed a fever and died, and it was found that she had been exposed to her son at a time when he did not have COVID-19, nor did he have any symptoms, but later on he was identified as having COVID-19. And the advice was to go ahead and code this patient's death as a COVID-19 death. That bothered me. Yeah. So I raised it up the flagpole, ended up being on a TV show earlier this week, and everything seemed to go viral. And I, I think really what I was saying was the, the concept of a, a death certificate is this is a document that needs to be done with integrity and facts. This is not something to be a maybe document or I've got a hunch or I thought this could be possible. This is a rock solid document that will determine how a state planning goes, whether or not an insurance company might pay off on a life insurance. It may have impact on following generations if there's some sort of mutational or chromosomal concern. The bottom line is in my 35 years of medicine, I was taught that a certificate of death was a big deal. Maintain your integrity. Do not allow it to be profaned by bias. And that seemed to make a lot of hullabaloo in the world of media. Well, it seemed to me, now you can correct me if this impression is wrong, but if we go down that road, aren't we likely to get a sense of the deadliness of COVID-19 that is not quite what it appears to be? Exactly. That's exactly right. In fact, the, one of the ministers to the Italian uh, Department of Health said, we take quite a generous attitude here in Italy. If someone dies in a hospital, we code it COVID-19. And then they did a follow-up study and they found that only 12% of the people that had been identified as dying of COVID-19 actually had a train of sequences that could establish causality. So they were saying that 88% of the COVID-19 diagnoses on death certificates could not establish 
a train or stream of causality. That's obviously going to ramp up the fear and the panic. Mm -hmm. Well, what if that's the objective? See, I think that's what's bound to occur to a rational mind. One takes a departure from a path that has been used to for the sake of integrity and accuracy for a long time, was a standard in the profession. And suddenly, in the face of this episode, you find people erring in a direction that is likely to swell the numbers uh, beyond the point justified by actual experience. Why, when you're trying to mount a scientifically based response, would you be encouraging what is at the end of the day such a dilution of the rigorous integrity that we expect from science? Well, I think that the definition of science is often lost on people. Science is nothing more than observation, than measurements of data, then creating a hypothesis, and then creating an experiment to see if you can demonstrate that your hypothesis is correct. If it is, then you reproduce it. And generally what you want to do is you want to ask other scientists to do the same experiment separately so that they can come to their own conclusions. We're not doing that. We've got politicians that are weighing in and spinning things. But we also have to remember that politicians are the ones that appoint the commissioners and the department heads and the cabinet members. And you can't serve in those roles without getting political. Five years ago, I had no idea I was going to be a senator, no interest. But I tell you, this five-year education has taught me that there are very few conversations that take place regarding problem solving that aren't flavored with politics, power, and dollars. And that's a, a vicious combination, and it's, it's present with this COVID-19 discussion, whether someone wants to acknowledge it or not. You can put on your rose-colored glasses if you want, but these things matter. Well, and it looks like, if I may say so, and I don't know how extensive this phenomena is or, or, uh, or anything like it, but part of the problem as one looks at what's been going on is that it has been colored in exactly the way you just described. And a lot of it ends up seeming like there's a huge effort going on to be sure that some stinky, smelly albatross is hung around the neck of Donald Trump before the next election. Um, and I can't say that I, when I was reading what you were talking about, I have to admit, having a little experience myself, as you probably know, in politics, it jumped into my mind, doctor. It did. I said to myself, what? but that would inflate the numbers. And in a way, it does it in such a way that even if you were to come up with something effective against coronavirus and you kept up that kind of bad practice, you would still get numbers that didn't look like they were hopeful because they're being exaggerated by this way of coding. Uh, who would have a motive for that if it's not political? Because you want to be accurate and you want people to know that, that this thing is being handled if it is and, and, and to continue in their proper discipline if it is not. But since that discipline has an economic cost that also results in hardship, including death. We had a situation here in Tennessee where in one of the counties, the, the recent deaths from suicide outweighed the deaths from coronavirus. So we're paying a price for the effort we're making to try to cope with this situation. 
if we can't trust that it's being done on a rigorous scientific basis, then we'll be going through what could be a devastating impact economically without a good scientific basis for doing so. Does that make sense? I think it makes all the sense in the world. And I, I, but I do think you may have made an assumption there. And that was, you said, we want to be accurate. Well, that would be nice. But frankly, it's so easy in this world to, if you will, subordinate accuracy to being right. People want to be right. If a modeler comes out and puts together a model, they want their model to be right. They don't want to have to apologize or, if you will, walk it back a little bit like the fellow from England when he all of a sudden said, we're not going to have 2.2 million deaths in America. We're going to have 500,000. Well, my stars. <laughs> so you're saying that you're off by a margin of 400%. Okay, if that's what it is, that's what it is. But then just acknowledge it. But I really do think that accuracy should be the high watermark, but frankly, being right is so important. And if you're right, or even if you aren't right, but you can have people think you're right, then you get to take the next step on the ladder and you're this person instead of that person. So I don't know that we can assume that accuracy is of the highest order. I think sometimes being right is, and I think sometimes authority is, and I think sometimes maintaining fear and panic is. But I think one way to fight that is to, to talk about context. And I see very little media talking about context. Let's talk about our situation in Minnesota. In Minnesota, we have about 400 deaths in 2018 from the flu. This year now in COVID, with COVID-19, we've had 57. And it seems like there's this panic. We have 57 COVID-19 deaths this year. And in in Minnesota in 2018, we had 400 influenza deaths. The, the uh, IHME projections indicate that Minnesota on August 4th, we will have 450 deaths from COVID-19. When you put that in the context of it, things, then things seem like, okay, this is doable. We can handle this. We can manage this. Our average age of person dying of COVID-19 in Minnesota is 87 years old. The average lifespan in Minnesota is 80. So then again, we start to feel comforted. Okay, we can manage this. So I think context is really important. In America, 10,000 people die every day. So when we start talking about the numbers we're seeing now, remember, 10,000 people die every day. One out of 300, excuse me, one out of 100 people in America die every year. We have 3 million deaths. We have 300 million people. One out of 100 people die every day. Uh, die every year in America. We need to remember the context. And if we remember the context, uh, we are then going to have to balance things out, right? Yes. Uh, because what if, and there are people I've been reading who are making arguments in this way, the uncertainties of all the modeling and things like this leave you in a position, if you're President Trump, you have two things you have to be careful of. One, you can't seem to be nonchalant and behindhand in responding to what's being built up as this terrible crisis. On the other, you have to cope with the reality that fear isn't just about feeling afraid. It's about what people do as a result, and our economy has already been hit hard in terms of the perceptions that result about our situation and about the measures being taken to deal with it and the economic effect that they've had. As you look at that situation, considering these things 
uh, uh, in, in, in balance. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, about the best approach for us to be taking uh, as we confront this situation with the measures already taken, but also with the prospect that we might not reach a point where we can just definitively say, okay, this crisis is over, let's get back to business. Uh, what if it turns out to be something a little more complex than that? Uh, how do we figure out how to return to an effective economic life in the face of what might be, you know, an ongoing situation? Well, the first thing, I think we have to be very, very careful of groupthink. I think groupthink is a very powerful, compelling force. Obviously, in 1978 with Jimmy Jones in Guyana, he was able to get a thousand people to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and a thousand people died. Groupthink is one of the biggest risks we have today. We have got to avoid that. Going forward, if we haven't recognized by now that one size fits all or a cookie cutter approach isn't the way to go, then we've just buried our head in the sand. And that's what I would say. We have areas in the country where they're not locking down and they're doing okay. Now, I know people will pull statistics out and say that I'm crazy and all that, but go ahead, have at it. We have other countries in the world who are doing the same thing. Right now, people don't realize we have 50,000 people a year commit suicide. The suicide hotlines are going off off the top. The abuse lines, more than 50% of the people calling in on abuse issues are related to COVID-19. We are having deaths, problems, tremendous issues in our homes around the country that aren't showing up on a nifty little dashboard with a rotating little death counter. But those people are just as much in suffering and many of them are just as dead. So I think we have to say, okay, where we're at now, in many situations, we have indeed flattened the curve. We've pushed the peak down road. Now we don't know if the peak's going to happen in May or June or whatever. We cannot continue what we're doing. We talk about the surge. The surge is very possibly not going to be a tsunami. It may be, just be a big wave. So I would say that we need now to do something different. We need to pivot towards having that vulnerable group of people, the elderly, the frail, those with multiple comorbidities, have them voluntarily self-sequester if they can, let them stay at home. But the rest of us, we have to go out there, allow our immune systems to build an immunity. This bug isn't going to automatically go away because someone shot it with a bullet. This, the battleground is in our immune systems. We need to take ourselves, ourselves and be in good health, let our immune systems win the battle. We need to run the country. We need to make the widgets, continue the supply chain for food and medication. We're already running low on some medications. Nobody's going to tell us which meds they are because then we know that the people will go out and hoard them. But when this thing topples, when Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, it's not going to be easy to ask the king's men to come and put him back together again. It's going to be way tougher than we realized. We're going down a slippery slope and we've got to stop right now. Well, I think one of the things that does suggest that uh, and that I've been following is the response to the impact that this is having on our military readiness. Uh, dramatically illustrated recently in the problem with the Navy secretary uh, who reacted against the captain of the Theodore Roosevelt who was pleading for help for his uh, soldiers. Um, and uh, they got into a set two, and the Navy secretary went and gave a talk. Uh, but I thought one of the points he made in that talk, which uh, got lost in the shuffle somewhere, was that you have to kind of differentiate circumstances, as you just said. 
Uh, truth of the matter is, if you are serving in one set of circumstances, you're an individual expecting to go to work every day, live in a reasonably safe community, because that's why you have a police force, uh, be protected from untoward health threats, because that's why you have people trying to look out for such threats. Uh, but it's all being done because the aim is to make sure that you're safe and comfortable and happy and can go about your business, right? And that's a fair expectation. On the other hand, if you're part of a force that is under threat, whose business is to go into that threat and to fight the ship or to fight the enemy, whatever you want to call it, while under that threat, um, why would it suddenly become the first priority not to perform that duty until you absolutely have to stop performing it, but to make the first priority to keep you alive? The first priority of people in our military can't be to keep us alive. Not to keep, I mean, to keep themselves alive. No, that doesn't make any sense. Because wars happen to involve threats to life, and everybody knows it. My father always used to tell me, he was a career military guy, and he said one of the things that he thought you always had to do before you were going to be in an intense battle was that you had to make your peace with God and assume that you're already dead, and then go do your job. Put it out of your mind and go do your job. Uh, accept it, in other words. Um, and it was as if in that discussion that got lost somewhere. But let me make the point I'm really making. Isn't a certain level of threat, however, commonplace in human life? Uh, at one time we were a people in the wilderness, braving this and that difficulty as we broke up in our country, built things uh, uh, that, that would allow people to sustain themselves in what had, was undeveloped country, all the way through the 19th century and into the 20th. Uh, we uh, basically were a people who understood that folks die, and they die from various reasons. There are always threats. And we relied on our faith, and we drew from it courage, and we moved ahead. We didn't assume that we shut the world down because danger threatened us. No, danger is going to threaten us. We prepare for it to the best of our ability, and then we do what's necessary to build and sustain the life we want for ourselves and our family. Uh, don't we have to make an effort to rediscover that basic truth? And isn't this crisis a time when we need to think that through? Alan, thank you uh, for that articulate uh, summation of exactly what needs to come out of this. We have become insulated uh, as, a, as a society. Perhaps people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who, who if you will, in their 90s, lived through Vietnam like we did, maybe we still tap into that bank of experiences, but quite frankly, America, but actually much of the world has become very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And we sort of see it as a God-given right that we get to hit the average lifespan. So if the average lifespan is 80 years, we get the first 80 and anything after that might be a bonus, but usually by the time you reach 78, you figure that you're entitled to 90. And I think that's exactly <laughs> what we need to do is we need to stop and we need to say life's a fragile thing. And if we can come away with if you will, a recalibrated perspective on that balance between life and health, th that would be a good thing. Right now, I think we're forgetting that freedom isn't easy. Freedom isn't risk-free. Freedom means that you will be willing to give up your life for a greater good. One of the big benefits about this whole darn COVID-19 thing that we're forgetting is that the young people seem to be spared which is wonderful. 
I'm 65. I'm an at-risk person, okay? Well, good for me. I mean, if COVID-19 is going to hit someone, whether it be me or my grandson, and I certainly hope it hits me. And, and if one of us has to check out of the earth this time around, take me. We need the young people to move forward. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of a country are we leaving for them? When we get back, I would like to focus a little bit on just what, exactly what you're saying and, and develop it, because I think this is an opportunity to rediscover a truth about our self-government, about our constitutional uh, liberty and so forth. Uh, and that truth is the truth that at the end of the day, our character is the key. And what has been happening to it and what may be an opportunity in this crisis uh, to rediscover its importance and rebuild upon that importance. We'll be right back. More IMTV episodes? We are now streaming through Roku. Roku is a device that enables you to stream entertainment to your TV through your internet provider. The starting price is only $29, and you can purchase one either online or through your local electronics retailer. It's easy to use, and you won't have to worry about missing any more IMTV episodes. IMTV, changing the world. Podcasts are great when you're a multitasking person. You can listen to them around the house, when you're out in the car, when you take a walk. Now we have put our shows on to podcasts, and you can listen to Let's Talk America uh, on podcasts. You can find them at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other apps. While you're there, subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Thanks for listening and supporting us. Together, we're changing the world. Welcome back. I am having, I think, a very insightful discussion with Scott Jensen. Uh, he's a, a state senator from Minnesota. He's become the focus of some attention because uh, he had and ha is sharing with us a very thoughtful reaction uh, to something that was sent to him uh, as guidance for uh, how doctors uh, should handle the reporting of deaths uh, in, in this era of the coronavirus. And, uh, and his response, I think, raised some issues, both about the integrity of our science, but at the end of the day, also about uh, what is actually being tested in this situation that we face, and whether uh, we can come out on the other side in a way that actually is focused on the right priorities, but also prepares us better, in fact, to make sure we're handing on. Uh, the legacy of our constitutional self-government and its roots. And I think that's powerfully important, uh, uh, Dr. Jensen. I think it's, it's one of those things that unfortunately can get lost in the shuffle. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, that question is brought up right in the Constitution. People always talk about preserving the Constitution. Uh, but the, uh, one of the first things that said in the, in the last uh, sort of resounding uh, paragraph of the preamble is that the aim uh, is to uh, secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, which means we've got to be forward-looking. We can't just be thinking about threats to us today and effects and problems for us today. We've got to be making choices that will preserve the way of life uh, into the future so that our children and their children and their children uh, will inherit the responsibility and the challenges uh, that we have been called to meet, that others before us were called to meet. Uh, do you think that the way this is being presented to us, first of all, 
uh, brings that sense of what we have to do to deal with situations like this enough front and center uh, so that people can realize that it's not just something we're going through, it's something we need to see in light of our responsibility as citizens of a self-governing society where in a sense how we react, how we respond must reflect our responsibility not just for the whole country even, but for the whole future of the country. I uh, felt like during the break that we took, I was thinking about the preamble to the Constitution, and I was surprised that you took the words right out of my mouth, but truly to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. That implies that we have an obligation to the future, and that should frame the way we look at our present crisis, but it is not. Mm. We are not having those kinds of discussions. We are not having, right now, frankly, there should be a push. Wherever someone is anticipating a surge of COVID-19, we should, in advance of that, be checking to make certain that we've all been clear with the people around us as to what our wishes are in terms of the extent of care we receive. I'm 65. I'm a person at risk. I need to make certain that if I don't want to be on a respirator or a ventilator, that that be made clear. This is something that could happen and could be good. But in a general way, when we move past this coronavirus, and we will, if we can look back and see that we pivoted in a way that we became a wiser society, a more selfless society, that we made decisions that weren't focused just on us, but on future generations, so that indeed we would secure the blessings of posterity for future generations. That's what we need to do. And I'm hopeful that that can happen, but we have so much divisiveness. We have so much fear. I, I feel like the normal formula that people use is scare then give them someone to blame. And then once you've given them someone to blame, don't pay any attention to the person who's being blamed when he or she tries to clarify things. Don't do that. Ridicule them. Ramp up the fear more. Put the point on them. And whatever happens, any solution, tear it down. When President Trump talks about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin as a potent, a potent combination, potentially helpful for COVID-19 patients, he's not trying to pretend he's a scientist. He's being a leader. He's providing us some optimism and some hope. And he's saying, we're looking at this. When he talks about convalescent plasma, being a potential lifesaver for people who are very sick with COVID-19. He's not putting on the lab coat of a scientist. He's putting on the mantle of a leader. He's saying, I take care of millions and millions of people. I'm trying to provide some hope and some perspective. We've got a vaccine in process. I can't guarantee you when it'll be available. But by George, we're doing everything we can to fast track it. He's not being bombastic. He's being a leader. And yet he's torn down for that. That's a problem. He is our leader. Try to put away the divisiveness and let him lead. Well, I have a well, part of what you just said, and we'll get to the other part in a minute, but raised something for me that you also have in your background, because uh, you're somebody who uh, has been conducting a medical practice that stays open to what I think of as the full dimension of healthcare. I used to, when I was involved myself in politics and campaigning and so forth and so on, uh, one of my critiques of the way we have been encouraged to think of the health system uh, is uh, that it doesn't live up to its name. 
because the primary emphasis uh, when you deal with health these days is sickness. So it turns out not to be a health care system, but a sickness care system. And yet there's an alternative to a sickness care, and that is the body, when it's uh, properly taken care of, does pretty well at coping with its environment. And we actually have things available for our diet and in other ways that can be helpful in maintaining our immune system and in doing other things. And if you put a first emphasis on preserving health, which people had to do for centuries, right, because that's all they had. They didn't have a whole lot of quick fixes for serious problems when they developed. They had to be mindful of their experience, do what helped to keep people strong so that they can cope with challenges uh, because their body and of their body's natural uh, responses and strength, uh, and then make use of what is in their environment, which seemed to show a connection with yes. that process of keeping people healthier and making them stronger. Are we open enough right now in the way we approach healthcare, or should we, while not in any way discouraging or disparaging allotropic medicine, scientific research, all these things that reflect our scientific method, which is, quite frankly, and it was put this way by the people who developed it, uh, to torture nature, that is to put it in the grilling box and make it give us the answers we want to deal with our problems, uh, or would it also be helpful to look at the fact that there are resources in the body and in nature itself and we need to be open to the possibility uh, that there are ways of dealing with a crisis, even one like this, that would allow people to seek to go down those paths and research them as well. Because we're not doing it right now. We're focused on a certain set of experts and we're leaving out other possibilities. Uh, and I, I find myself thinking about India and other places. I bet they're not doing this. Uh, because they still have a kind of open sense uh, of what nature itself has to offer. Am I making sense? Yes, I think you are. And actually, it's very pertinent for what we're going through with COVID-19. You're basically saying mind, body, spirit. Mm. And I think so oftentimes in Western medicine, we focus on the body and we look at the things that affect the body. And basically, that's usually surgery or uh, drugs. Sometimes it's specific therapy programs. But when we compromise the contribution to our physical health that the mind and the spirit make, there are good studies, some of them having been done in the military, that show that our immune system and our ability to fight back against disease is compromised. And that's exactly what we're doing now with some of the steps that have been taken with the COVID-19 thing. When we put people into a lockdown situation, we separate them from their support structure, especially uh, the elderly. And we say, you're not gonna be touched by another human. You're not gonna get a hug. You might be able to look at them through a glass window, but we are basically gonna take the mind, body, and spirit, and we're gonna say, the mind is out, the spirit is out, you've got body and we're trying to take care of that. You are going to kill people, and we know that's happening. Mm. So. What you're saying, we have to take a holistic approach. Hmm. And this is one of the big problems with, with, if you will, 21st century American healthcare today. We are 5% of the world's population, but we consume 95% of the world's Oxycontin. We're 5% of the world's population, but we take more than 50% of all the prescription drugs taken in the world. We have become a pill-taking society, and part of it is because it's a lot quicker, easier, and more efficient to write a prescription out for a patient than to hear their story. Well, doesn't that partly contribute to what's going on right now? Because, as I was saying, I think, that for human beings throughout history, 
and we have to remember that we wouldn't be here at all if they hadn't been relatively successful, at maintaining and perpetuating the human race. Uh, and they didn't have the pills and other things. And I'm not disparaging them in the right way and in the right circumstances, but it's all leading us to look immediately for that kind of response, something that's going to be instant and, and going to do it right now and going to come up with some miraculous answer. What if that's not the case? It wasn't the case, by the way, I think, interestingly enough, with malaria. Malaria was something you had to live with, and what we found to do with it was not cure it and have a nice vaccine that drove it away, but something that essentially allowed you, having identified the parasite, to deal with it. You might get it again, you might have to deal with it again, but you, you were going to find a way of dealing with it. Uh, and that way was a combination of what you could discover by research and so forth and so on, and what you could by common sense do in order to allow yourself to function uh, under the prospect that this might be happening to you depending on where you were in the world and so forth. Wasn't the ability to make that combination work, partly a result of courage. You didn't stop and just say, well, I can never go anywhere where I be, might be under that threat because we have no permanent problem, solution to it. Uh, so I think there's a direct relationship. And courage in this country, I think, has to a large degree, as through all of human history, though a lot of folks don't want to admit it anymore, been the result of faith and the sense that there is something at work in the universe that explains how all this complicated stuff got here, which we're just scratching the surface of understanding, so that it would all work together for good, right? And so that you could, in fact, uh, uh, survive in a universe where the Earth is exactly placed in the right point where when the sun's rays hit it, life can still flourish, and so forth and so on. All kinds of things that you could ascribe to coincidence but that we now, I think, have more and more reason with our own understanding, even though rudimentary, of programming and things like this, to say, well, you know, it's possible that could have been an intelligent arrangement, and so forth. But in any case, whatever the root of it, I think faith has played an important role. And yet one of the things brought to a head in this crisis was that for the first time, I think, in our history, we're sort of in a crisis where we're not being encouraged to emphasize that we are reliant on God. Donald Trump has done it, but many people in our society have turned away and scoff at that prospect altogether and don't feel at all disturbed at the likelihood that our churches will be empty on Easter and we haven't figured out a way to allow people to join together in worship. Is that a futile uh, desire? And if we sacrifice it temporarily, mustn't we find a way to make sure it is not a permanent sacrifice? Uh, I, I could not agree with you more. I think you're absolutely right. And it's interesting to me that the people in this crisis that are most comfortable living out their faith, leaning into their faith, are quite frankly the people that are at the greatest risk. M many of them, many of my patients in their 80s and 90s are very clear that if COVID-19 is to take someone's life, they want it to be theirs because they look to the day that they will meet their creator. Mm. I am a faith-based individual. Before I went into medicine, I was in the seminary, and it's powerfully important to me. And my patients and I talk a lot about faith. And we talk about uh, the fact that oftentimes what is such a, a huge crisis in our life right now, in just a short while, will seem like a speck of sand on the timeline of our lives and on the timeline of 
of mankind. And so I think that if we could reconnect with faith, it would help us through this COVID-19 thing. It would for sure help us let go of some of that animosity. It seems like we have difficulty disagreeing and having a conversation. If someone see the world the way you do or I do, we just shift immediately towards contempt. We hold the other person in contempt. And there is no way that that's going to move anything in the right direction. Mm. So to your point, faith is part of that mind, body, spirit. Faith can raise up uh, the, the body. Uh, there was an interesting study done some years ago where they took 50 people in one arm of the study and 50 in the other, and they all had cancer and at approximately the same stage, same kind. And what they did was they put 50 of the people into standard conventional treatment protocols, and the, and the other 50 said, we'll go into hospice. So you have 50 in hospice, 50 typical chemotherapy, radiation, the, the whole shebang. They fully expected that the people in hospice would die sooner, but die more peacefully. What happened was the people in hospice were more peaceful, but they actually outlived the people that were in the conventional protocols, indicating that the power of the mind, the power of hope, the power of spirit has a real impact with how we deal with the physical ailments that afflict us. I think that what you said there has a direct and potentially, I think, quite positive implication for our politics that's not quite being realized. Uh, because in point of fact, that element of faith uh, becomes a way of reminding us that we stand on a common ground as Americans, right? Uh, which then opens us to the fact that we stand on a common ground as human beings. Because I think the remarkable thing about the American founding, which has always uh, contributed to my dedication to trying to preserve this way of life, is that it began on a premise that wasn't about a particular ethnic group. It was about the relationship between God and his creation and its implications for all humanity. That famous line from the Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that word rights intrigues me continually because some people think it's just freedom to do what you want. But that's not the meaning of the word right. Right begs a question, right according to what standard? And the standard is answered in the Declaration. It's the standard of the laws of nature and nature's God. It's the standard of the Creator endowing us with the inclination that is there in our family life, there in the care for our children, there in our willingness to care for other human beings. We have an inclination to do right by other people and even to do right by the world of God's creation. And a lot of that emanates from faith. Uh, I'm noticing that in the course of this crisis, a lot of people seem to be in the, in, in the process of rediscovering the role of that in their individual lives because we've been so distracted by the toys and the things and the electronics and the this and the that and the other thing. This has forced us in a way to you know, take a look at ourselves in relation to other human beings and rediscover our responsibility for their care. And the difficulties we're having showing that right now I think, and the fact that people are feeling it, and you can read about it in what they're saying on Facebook and others, this means it's reawakening, that there's more to life than our distractions. Uh, and even when those distractions are worthwhile, there is still a responsibility of care 
exemplified in parents and their children. You talked about the relationship with grandparents. Is all of this going to, to help us, perhaps, uh, to rediscover that aspect of our identity as a free people, which accepts that self-government is disciplined by respect for right, in terms of the right doing we owe to other people? I think it is. I think that we're being forced to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, we, we live in, it's not just a microcosm of me, it's, it's a macrocosm of us. And I think in that, I think we're having that balance. Who should run, if you will, the engine of the country to make certain that people are taken care of that aren't able to? We have a lot of social media discussion where, well, it's my right to demand that you stay locked down or someone else saying it's my right. And so I, I think the whole issue of rights is a very confusing one. I think I would agree with you, Alan, that many people would consider rights to be freedoms. Um, I would ascribe to the beliefs that you've expressed that indeed there are, if you will, gifts of nature, which I think emanate from our creator. Those gifts are the rights we have. Life, if you will, is, 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 is a, a natural right. And uh, I, I think, to me, I think we're wired to be free. And if we're not free, then in fact, uh, usually the compromise is broad-based and it affects the mind, body, and spirit. Uh, I was hoping that we could get a talk just a little bit about some perverse incentives that are coming out of this whole COVID-19 thing as we try to deal with it mm. in the medical world. Oh, yes, go ahead. Absolutely. I think that it's important to realize that right now, we are creating perverse incentives at a political and a, if you will, public health level. If I admit a patient to the hospital with the diagnosis of pneumonia, the hospital is going to get $4,600. If I admit them with COVID-19 pneumonia, they get $13,000. And if I, admit, if I admit them with COVID-19 pneumonia and I put them on a ventilator, then we get $39,000 mm. through Medicare. To me, we need to all be mindful of the fact that this creates possible disruptions in the way we would normally want to behave and make decisions. We don't want the ethics of medicine to be tarnished um, by the need to finance uh, the institutions in which we work or for whom we work. And yet we, we're at that situation, I think. And, and I think I don't have any bone to pick or any magic answer, but I really do think that it's important for us to elevate the conversation so that Americans across the borders, uh, across the borders of each and every state, we can talk about these things. That How does this work? Uh, is this the way we want to go? How do we make these decisions? And again, I would want to get back to the idea that we as individuals have to spend some time reflecting that's that's what this time in our lives is doing to us this is not 911 this is not something that we can overcome by shooting more bullets in the air or, or exploding bigger bombs this is an invisible war it's going to be won on the battlegrounds of our own immune system but in the meantime we have to ask ourselves at the question at the question at the end of this what kind of person was i mm -hmm. was i thoughtful kind was i willing to live for another was I worried just about me or did I think about the future generations to come and what we left them? I, I just hope that we can really push into that area because that's the value of what we're going through. 
Well, I, I, we are coming to the end of this segment, and you just opened up something that I think is so rich in, in the need to be explored. Uh, I'm going to express this on the air. I don't usually, but I hope you'll be able to come back at some point because this conversation, I think, has been uh, very worthwhile. And, and you seem both capable of discussing and be open to discussing aspects of this that I haven't found a lot of people talking about in the sober way that you have talked about them. Um, on the show here, and I hope I can treat my, my uh, audience to this uh, again at some point. Because a lot of it, you know, it reminds me of that famous quote that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he actually took it from somewhere else, but uh, wh which is famously associated with him. The only thing we have to fear, he said, was fear itself. And two things are true. I think a lot of fear-mongering has been going on in the course of the last several weeks for various purposes, partisan purposes, thinking this is going to help this and that one win the election and so forth, uh, ideological purposes, thinking that we have to fight back against these enemies who are going to destroy this and that freedom we have, and we've got to tell this. But it, a lot of it has ignored the fact that the preoccupation with fear only shows that we are in the midst of battle. But then the question becomes not, you know, what, because very often, what decides the outcome of battle is not so much what the danger is as what you become in response to the danger, uh, as what you become as you wrestle fear to the ground for the sake of what you believe is really important, for the sake of those things that you hope will live beyond you, no matter whether you live or die. And this discussion touched on those things, but I'd like to continue that if you don't mind. And, and uh, if you didn't mind, we'll get in touch with you. I know you're a busy man, but uh, I would hope we can continue to explore this, because I think that theme is a theme that is both kind of challenging but hopeful. And it shows that out of this, I don't know if we'll become a greater people, but we can become a better people if we put our minds to it. And I want to thank you for sharing that thought with us today. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be a benefit to the people watching. And I pray, God, that you will go on uh, in all your careers, because I think you have a way of looking at things that could be of great benefit to this nation uh, and to the people of your state, but also to all of us as we go through and, I hope, do become better as a result of meeting the challenge of this time. Uh, God bless you, sir, and thank you for coming on. Uh, I wish you well uh, in the days and weeks ahead. I hope your voice gets out there. Uh, and I hope you all will ponder seriously what you have heard here today. And then join us again here at Let's Talk America. <laughs>